Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening to Killer Queens. Or KQ if you're nasty. Welcome to the show where two 90s loving country chicks gab about true crime and tell each other to talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. I'm Torella. And I'm Tori. And we're sisters who have always loved true crime and decided to turn that obsession into a show with a light take on the topic. Kind of like diet true crime, it's all the flavor of fewer calories. Mm. Now with our show, you'll get true crime, 90s nostalgia, and a few four-letter words sprinkled in. Because I always say that Polly Pockets and true crime go together like peas and carrots. Be sure to check out our case submission form on our website at killerqueenspodcast.com and follow us on social media and YouTube. Now grab your Sunny D, your Gushers, and your Thai Beanie Baby, and let's get into the episode. This episode contains discussion of murder, strangulation, and dismemberment. Listener discretion is advised. In 2011 in Macon, Georgia, Lauren Giddings was reported missing on June 30th. No one had heard from Lauren in about four days. An investigation into her whereabouts quickly formed, and not long after Lauren was reported missing, a torso was found in a trash can of her apartment complex. Investigators quickly zeroed in on a suspect, Stephen McDaniel, who was eventually arrested for and convicted of murder. Hey, you guys. Welcome to Killer Queens. If you've never been here before, we want to give you just a little information about how the show is set up and what it's meant to accomplish. If you have been here before, welcome back. You can just use that handy skip ahead feature here if you want to. We want to give a message to friends and family of the victims. We know that there may be someone involved in the case who might listen one day, and we want you to know that our intention is to only bring awareness to this case. And while we do use personal stories in some instances and our own humor in order to tell the story in a way that listeners can relate, we have the utmost respect for victims and their families. We created Killer Queens to be a place where we can have open discussions about cases just like you would with friends. We are not investigators. We use information that is available to the public, such as documentaries, case files, and media coverage. Using this information, we intend to tell the story of what happened in each case that we cover. Now, will you agree with our interpretations or conclusions of each case? Well, heck no. Mm-mm. We each approach cases from different perspectives, life experiences, and beliefs that we already have in place. And sometimes these differences are slight, yet they can be wide enough to cause divide and upset some of those listening. We do our best to present the facts as we find them in our research, but we do bring our own perspectives to the case. We understand that you will too. We want you to know that this is a safe space to discuss differences and opinions in a civilized manner. Our style may not be your personal preference, and if that's the case, we know you'll be able to find one of the many other shows out there to tell the story the way you want to hear it. We can be grown-ups about it if you can. Now, if we are your cup of tea and you want even more KQ, you can join our Patreon and get access to our entire catalog of episodes ad-free and access to bonus episodes too. And I'll give you just a little hint if you're an ad skipper, um, but you still want the deals that we have from our sponsors each week, you can scroll down to the show notes and see what coupons we have available for you right down there. But you didn't hear it from us. Mm -mm -mm, That's a pro tip, but I'll deny ever sharing it. Right. So all that being said, let's get into the story. All right, you guys, it is mixtape time. Mixtape time on Killer Queens. Mm-hmm. Also in Tennessee, but also everywhere else. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, especially Lisa, but especially Bart. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Um, well, I think we're just going to get right on into it. Yeah. Um, we first want to thank Lizzie G for requesting this case. Yes. And, of course, we have to thank Mark for writing it up. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. So, obviously, to tell any story, the best place to start is the beginning. I think so. Mm-hmm. And the best person to take us to the beginning is Hillary Duff. <laughs> Let's go back, back to the beginning, back to when the earth, the sun, the stars all aligned, cause perfect 
Giddings was born in April of 1984 to Bill and Karen Giddings in Maryland. Lauren was the oldest of three girls, and she had two sisters, Caitlin and Sarah. The Giddings lived in Laurel, Maryland, and that's where Lauren lived until she moved to Georgia later in life. Growing up, Lauren was described as driven, enthusiastic, and ambitious. In school, Lauren was extremely popular and didn't have any problems making friends. From kindergarten to eighth grade, she attended St. Mary's School, then Othalon, Othalfon, 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 oh my God, Othalton, oh, Othalton, Jesus, that, that hurt me to say, say it again, Othalton. High school, where she graduated in 2002. Lauren played field hockey and softball while in high school. After high school, she decided to attend Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. That's got to be a a difference. Yeah. Maryland to Georgia. (laughs) Lauren had always felt a draw to the Southern states and chose the small liberal arts school partly due to its proximity to Atlanta. Lauren was the first member of her family to attend college, something her family was extremely proud of. Our family will be extremely proud when that happens to us one day, too. (laughs) There's always time. There's always time. Maybe maybe one of our kids will be the ones, because Ben is not going to go to college, though. He's going to be a YouTuber. Okay. You don't understand school for that. Right. Sure. Lauren attended Agnes Scott until 2006, where she graduated with a major in political science and a minor in religious studies. After graduation, she returned home to plan her next steps. Growing up, Lauren always had the idea in her head that she would be a doctor, but at some point, something else grabbed her attention and she focused her sights on becoming a lawyer. That alone should give you a pretty good idea of the type of person that Lauren was. I mean, she was motivated, she was driven. When she set a goal for herself, she worked tirelessly to achieve it. And law school ain't messing around. Mm-mm. Tough stuff, like, man. Yeah, it's crazy. In 2008, Lauren decided it was time to go back to Georgia. And she enrolled at Mercer University's law school, and she moved to Macon, Georgia. While in Macon, Lauren moved into Barrister's Hall, which was a small apartment community that catered directly to students who attended the law school. It sounds like a dorm. Like when I first heard Barrister's Hall, I was like, oh, she lived in a dorm like on campus, but it was just an apartment complex. Yep. Essentially. Sturdy as fuck apartment complex. I mean. Oh, yeah. The owner of the apartment building said that when they purchased the building, it was a rundown place. It really did not appeal to anyone. Um, So she was like, you know, we thought if we could fix it up, we could rent out the apartments to law students. So They put in a bunch of work, and then all of a sudden, Barrister's Hall was like the place for law students. It was, it was exactly what they thought. It was chock full of law students. Like they too were driven. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and the apartment complex was the perfect place for the law school. Yes, because it's right across the street from the law school. Oh yeah, it was perfect. And you know, these kids are. I don't know. Some of them, I'm sure, are not kids anymore. You know what I mean? But like the students are like there are times I mean, we're going to talk about people didn't think it was weird to not hear from Lauren for four or five days because she was studying like that for that long, like locked herself in her apartment and just studied, didn't talk to anybody, had her phone notifications, you know, like whatever she had to do. And they all were kind of like that. So it's like you're right there next to campus. They can pretty much it kind of seems like their whole lives are campus and studying mm-hmm. until like they get through this. Your interests are muscles and fitness. There's, yes. yes. That's all I think about. Campus and studying. That's it. Muscles and fitness. Here we go. I, I mean, I I look like I really care about muscles. And fitness. Oh, you quit can, it. You can see all these muscles here. We're on Zoom today, that. so we, I see a we muscle. can see each other. Oh, that was a, that was a, a bump in my sweater. Um, all right. So Lauren attended Mercer for the next few years. And in May of 2011, she graduated from law school with a Juris Doctorate degree. I've heard them call themselves JDs. Oh, the JDs. Okay. So that's what that means, I guess. 
After graduation, there was one more hurdle in her way to becoming a lawyer. She had to pass the the, the Zarbazam. That's what I was going to fucking say. Oh, my God. The Zarbazam. Um, in English, that's the bar exam. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. In most jurisdictions, the bar exam is two days long, and it consists of multiple choice questions, essay questions, and, quote, performance tests. It sounds horrifying. A lot of work. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine. A performance test may... (laughs) I I mean, at this point, like, what do I highlight? I highlight the whole... I can't even say the word highlight. Is this a good idea? (laughs) Should we... (laughs) Call today a day. Should we try to do this Friday morning before I go to my wax? I can do it. I can do it. A performance test may include tasks such as writing a legal memo, drafting an affidavit, or drafting a settlement offer letter to opposing counsel. Generally, earning a degree from a law school is a prerequisite for taking the bar exam which I did not know is not always the case. I thought you had to graduate law school to sit for the bar, but you can like just study, study, study and take it, which is, I guess, what Kim Kardashian is doing. That's how I learned that. And also one of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills is she was trying to study for the baby bar. I don't know how that differs from the actual bar exam. I don't know what that means. I think that's what Kim Kardashian is doing too. You take the you take the baby bar and then you have to have like a certain amount of study hours or something and then you can sit for the for the big the big bar. Is that what it no, I don't know. I heard that and I feel like I heard that in the article I read about it. So that's familiar. Okay. The baby bar sounds so cute. Yeah, little baby it's bar. Like, I'm a baby. I'm little. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Most law school graduates will typically go into a study regimen referred to as bar review after graduation to prepare for the exam. And this is usually a super intense period where the students hunker down, they study their a-holes right off. And I mean, everything they've worked for is leading up to this test. Mm -hmm. In many states, there is not a limit to the number of times that you can take the exam but there are some states that limit it anywhere from three to six times. And yeah. I mean, there are plenty of people who don't pass it the first time. Like, Oh, of course. Yeah. And you better get after it, apparently. So, yeah. So as we mentioned, Lauren graduated in May of 2011, and her plan was to start studying for the bar exam immediately. So that's what she did. In the weeks leading up to her murder, her she had told her family and friends that she would be studying. And they might go a few days or a week without hearing from her. So knowing the importance of the upcoming exam, many of them did not question it. It wasn't like she was completely unreachable, though. I mean, her family was still able to text her or call her, and she would respond and talk to them, but her responses might be more delayed than usual. So in addition to that, she stopped going out as much, and she just really focused on studying. On Wednesday, June 29th, one of Lauren's childhood friends, Katie O'Hare, grew concerned because it had been quite a few days since she had talked to Lauren. And Katie lived in Maryland still, but she and Lauren talked regularly. She knew that Lauren was busy, but it was odd that Lauren didn't take the time to at least reply to messages that were sent. So Katie started calling their mutual friends and Lauren's family to see if anyone had heard from her. And she found out that no one had heard from her or seen her since the uh, Saturday before. So at this point, Lauren's friends and family reached out to the Macon police and they did a welfare check. An officer went to her apartment that night, but there was no answer at the door and no signs of anything that was amiss. One of Lauren's sisters reached out to another law student in Macon and asked her if she could get uh, get an ocular pat down on Lauren, see if she could like check on her, see what was going on there. Ashley, who is the friend, goes over. And she didn't get an answer at the door either, but she did see that Lauren's car was parked in the parking lot. So she calls Caitlin, who is Lauren's sister, back and told her that there was no answer, but the car was still there. And that's when friends and family really began to worry. Ashley knew that Lauren kept a spare key um, somewhere, so she decided that she would use it to get into Lauren's apartment, and she entered with a few friends who also also lived in Barrister's Hall. There were no signs of forced entry to the apartment, and when they got inside, they found Lauren's keys, her purse, her cell phone, and her laptop that were all still in the apartment, but they didn't see any sign of Lauren. That's a red flag. Yes. Where has she gone? Especially 
I don't know what downtown Macon or wherever this is. I'm not going to say that that was in downtown Macon, but you know what I mean. Like, I don't know what Macon is like, but if she's going to go somewhere of her own free will, what would she have taken? Mm-hmm. Probably would have driven her car to wherever she was going. So she needs keys and a car. Mm-hmm. Really not smart to leave without your purse. Because if you're going to purchase anything, if you get pulled over, you're going to have a driver's license. Like everything was still there. Cell phone. This is 2011. Yeah. Cell phones are attached to you. Yeah. At that point. And even if she was just like going for a jog or something, she would have still taken her phone and her keys because she probably would have locked her door behind her. Mm-hmm. And she would need that. And then you always want your phone. I mean, if nothing else to keep up with how many miles you run or to listen while you're jogging or something, like listen to music or something. Like, right. It just doesn't make any sense. And not only that, so they they found all of these things in her apartment, right? But they noticed that her cell phone battery was dead. So they plugged it up. When they powered it on, they looked at her call log and the last time that she made any calls or sent a message was the last Thursday. Not Thursday, the last Saturday. While they were looking around, they also um, found what one of Lauren's neighbors just kind of appeared out of nowhere. And this is Stephen McDaniel, who, if you remember from the episode description, Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he's an important person. So, They all said that he was just odd and his presence there was just weird. Stephen McDaniel lived in the apartment right by Lawrence. He had attended Mercer with her and graduated in May when she did. He was also studying for the bar exam while Lauren was. And Stephen was described as extremely shy and many called him awkward around people. He was extremely intelligent and his plans after law school were to work his way up to becoming a federal judge. Stephen spent a lot of time in his room all by himself. He rarely went out. He didn't drink alcohol with other students. He wasn't, it it seems like he just kind of kept to himself. He wasn't really a part of the college life like everybody else was. Mm -mm. So at Mercer, both Stephen and Lauren joined the Federalist Society, which describes itself as, quote, an organization of lawyers, law students, scholars, and other individuals who believe and trust that individual citizens can make the best choices for themselves in society. Founded in 1982 by a group of law students interested in making sure that the principles of limited government embodied in our Constitution receive a fair hearing. So they both remained in the society throughout their time at Mercer and doing their last doing during their last year at the school. Lauren was elected president of the society and then Stephen was elected vice president. So a lot of people thought that Stephen was a weird guy, right? A lot of people just really didn't make any effort to be friends with him. But Lauren was always really friendly with him, even if she did think that he was strange. They had moved into the apartments the same week as each other. There are so many, like, they're right there with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they moved into the apartments the same week. And over the course of their years there, Stephen asked Lauren out a few times, but she did say no, but she was nice about it. She never agreed to go out with him, but she was really nice about it. So at this point, all of Lauren's friends and family knew that she hadn't texted or called anyone since Saturday. They called 911 and two Mercer University police officers came out and talked with them. The university police then called the Macon PD for assistance and an officer came out to the apartments between midnight and 1 a.m. Together with the officers, Lauren's friends searched the apartment complex and surrounding area, but there again was no sign of her. Around 3 a.m., the officers left. An official investigation into Lauren's disappearance was opened a few hours later, the morning of June 30th. Dozens of police officers showed up at Barrister's Hall and began to interview all of Lauren's friends and neighbors. When the case was first opened that morning, every detective in their violent crimes unit was called out to the scene. They searched through Lauren's apartment and everything looked normal. There were no signs of a struggle or like anything that would point to anything that violent had happened, right? One detective remarked that the only thing that seemed out of place was the fact that her car, I mean, her keys, her purse, and her phone were still there along with the car. And that in itself is very suspicious. And initially, their minds went to a scenario where Lauren had been abducted and couldn't get away. But that was until the crime scene investigators came to the scene. Succinylcholine. No, Mm. this is not what happened. But So the CSI tech, he went over everything with a fine-tooth comb. He's looking for any fingerprints, DNA, anything that could shed some light on what happened. They went to the bathroom, and they used luminol in the bathtub. When they hit it with the blacklight, one investigator or one detective said that it glowed like a Christmas tree. Glowed right up. 
So at this point, they knew that something happened in Lauren's apartment and whatever it was left a ton of blood behind. After this discovery, they talked to neighbors. At this point, there weren't a ton of students left at the apartment since graduation had occurred the month before. And the few students who were there were in the same boat as Lauren. Like they're getting ready to take the bar exam. They had their heads down. They didn't really pay much attention to what was going on outside of their own little world of just study, study, study. As they're talking to everyone, no one really noticed anything out of the ordinary. While they were outside of the apartment complex, one investigator said that it was a slightly windy day. You might even call it blustery. I don't know. Oh. But every so often, they would get a whiff of something terrible smelling, like just awful smell. And at one point, the wind shifted and they followed the smell to, they called it a trash can. I would call it a dumpster. Yeah, they did. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Just because it is, it's a dumpster. It's 100% a dumpster. It's not like just a single, like you you push your garbage can out to the street for the trash man to come pick it up. It wasn't, it was a complete dumpster. But anyway, so this is outside of the apartments and they noticed that the smell is coming from this. One investigator said that it was a smell that you will never forget once you smell it, which is something that we hear all of the time. Yeah. So yeah. They go to the dumpster, they open it up, and they found something wrapped in a few black trash bags and they pull it out. And when they opened it, they discovered that it was a human torso. Hmm. The head, arms, and legs were missing. And the detectives didn't confirm that it was Lauren until DNA testing was done, but they knew it was her immediately. Based on the tissue decomposition from the body, the medical examiner determined that Lauren had been killed sometime between Saturday morning June the 25th, and then Sunday evening, June 26th. With the information regarding Lauren's time of death, the investigators started to try to build a timeline of when Lauren was last seen and who she had spoken with last. In talking with Lauren's friends, they learned that the last time many of her friends saw Lauren was on Friday, June 24th. They had all gone out to a bar downtown. One of those friends was an ex-boyfriend of Lauren's named Joe. And even though they'd broken up, Joe and Lauren were still close friends. After the group left the bar that night, after blowing off some steam from, you know, studying for the bar, they went back to Joe's apartment and they hung out and had some more drinks. And Lauren ended up actually staying at Joe's apartment that night. The investigators immediately talked to Joe and they learned that when their relationship came to an end, it was Lauren that had ended things and not Joe. Initially, they thought maybe this could be like a jilted lover thing. Like he was, you know, peeved that she had broken up with him and he was going to get back at her for it. Joe confirmed that Lauren stayed at his house that night, but said that she left his house around 8 a.m. the next morning and was alive and well when she did so. When Lauren left his apartment, she told Joe that she was going to head to a local country club and hang out by the pool that afternoon. So investigators went to the country club. They look at the surveillance video and sure enough, she is seen on the tapes by the pool ordering a drink. So that shrinks their timeline down further. So we know that after she went out Friday night, stayed the night at Joe's, now we've got footage of her on Saturday. So now we're between 1 p.m. on Saturday to 9 p.m. on Sunday. With Joe in the clear, investigators then looked at Lauren's current boyfriend, David. I think that you can also call him a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. Her current piece of shit, David. Yes. Exactly. David lived in Atlanta. That was about an hour away. Uh, he was a practicing lawyer. He was 20 years older than Lauren. So he was a well-established attorney. The investigators said that before they had talked to David, some of Lauren's friends had mentioned that he was thinking about proposing. I don't know where they got that information. Because we're about to hear right from the horse's ass's mouth. Mm-hmm. that that probably wasn't the case, but... Right. Um, David himself said that their relationship was rocky at times. You know, they had problems just like everybody else did. And many people in Lauren's family did not care for him, likely because of the age difference, probably also because he's a dick. Yeah, I think that'll do I it. I mean, I don't think he factored that one in, but that's definitely there. Um, so investigators had David come to Macon from Atlanta and they questioned him. And he did. And when he was talking to the detectives, he was fully cooperative. He answered all their questions. During his interview, David said that he had an alibi, which proved to be true. 
he was in California on a golf trip from 9.40 a.m. on Friday morning, and he was there until he got back to Atlanta on Monday morning at 6 a.m. And he said the entire time he was gone, he didn't talk to Lauren once. Not one time. I think the thing that we, because I looked this up, because I just wasn't sure, California didn't have phones then. Oh. See? So what could he do, you know? He didn't talk to her one time, and the detective was like, you went on a golf trip with your friends? You didn't talk to your girlfriend one time? During the whole weekend? Even four or five days? (laughs) He's like, no. Why would I? (laughs) Like, he thought it was, like, not a big deal. They, like, literally could not believe it. But he said, they said not even a text. No. Didn't you text her when you got back home to let her know you made it okay? No. No. Why would I? And he said he felt like if he called when he got back home or while he was gone, if he called her at all this weekend, it was going to lead to a conversation where she was going to ask, when are we getting married? And he didn't want to talk about that. I don't think he was about to propose. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And also, and I know I understand that we can't judge somebody on their reactions and, you know, how how they're dealing with this, all this stuff. All I'm going to say is, because we know that it wasn't him, but also because I can't stand this guy. He wasn't, he didn't seem upset at all. He was just like there to talk about I don't know, a traffic violation or something. He's like, yeah, I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You you can be a total piece of shit without being a murderer. Like, I'm not trying to make a joke and I hope, I hope that this is incorrect, but it almost feels like when he found out she was gone, he kind of was like, I dodged a bullet. Like, like that, that puts off that conversation even longer. Yeah. Because I didn't want to have to talk to her about that we weren't going to get married. I didn't want to have a fight about it. Yeah. I mean, we only got a snippet of their interview. But did he ask, do you have any leads? Do you know what happened to her? I've been worried about her. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, because it seems like he didn't know she was missing until. Well, of course, he didn't know she was missing because while he was gone is when she went missing. So he's got the alibi, but he never even thought maybe I'll talk to my girlfriend today. Mm-mm. No. And then it's like when he found out, like you said, he seems not worried in any way, shape or form. He's not like, oh, my gosh. I Like, even if you're a dick and you you don't feel bad about not talking to your girlfriend for a whole weekend, when you find out that you didn't talk to her all weekend, that you didn't even call and check on her and all that, and, and she's missing, she's likely been abducted. I mean, that's what the police believed. You don't feel bad at all. Like, oh, my gosh, I could have notified somebody sooner yeah it doesn't make any sense but guess what but wait there's more yeah so if you didn't like david just one paragraph ago you are going to want to yeet him into outer space right now Mm -hmm. right out so david also tells the detectives that on saturday around 10 p.m He'd received an email from Lauren, which he just did not reply to. In the email, Lauren said that she thought somebody had tried to break into her apartment, but then said it was probably just, you know, local kids and kind of brushed it aside. But she thought that either somebody had already broken into her apartment or was were in the middle of trying to break into her apartment. That like something was off. He sees this email, maybe not in in real time, but he sees this email and he doesn't think, man, I'm going to check in and see if everything's okay with her. He does not think that, not at all, because he didn't reply to it. He doesn't call her, he doesn't text her, he doesn't reply to this email. If your girlfriend, who lives by herself, is like, I think somebody tried to break into my house, wouldn't you call and be like, hey, are you okay? Do you need anything? Like, I know he was in California, but... But so what? Like, you and I do not live together. But if I get a text from you saying, oh my gosh, my soul just left my body. I know that that for a fact is, has not happened because you're texting me. But also, it's probably a spider or something. But I'm like, oh my gosh, are you okay? I give yeah. you more. You give We give each other more care and consideration and worry and concern 
about the dumbest shit in the entire world than David gave to her about an actual crisis that could have happened. Yeah, a crime that was taking place that could have that could have become very violent and in fact now we know did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was like he didn't even reply to her. Could not be bothered. <laughs> could not be bothered. He was golfing with his dudes. He was more worried about his golf swing. Mhm. Yeah. Oh yeah, he was. He was super worried about it because he'd worked real hard on it that weekend. He'd worked so hard on it that he'd given himself blisters. Mm-hmm. Really changed the swing, though. Well, it did. It sure did. Yeah. And that's that's something you just... It's priceless, really. Mm-hmm. Okay, but... So detectives, like, they verify David's alibi, so he's cleared. I mean, he was he was clearly in a different state. But now they've narrowed that time frame down a little bit more because we know that she was alive at 10 p.m. on Saturday because she sent the email. But that's the last communication anybody has from Lauren. So that's their new beginning point. With that new information, investigators began to develop a new theory that Lauren might have had a stalker and that person might have been responsible for her murder. They came to the conclusion that since there were no signs of forced entry, the person responsible must have had a spare key or a master key. So they go and talk to the maintenance man for the apartments, and he said the last time he'd been to Lauren's apartment was a couple weeks before her murder. He was actually also a student at Mercer. Um, He was also studying for the bar exam. So because of this, when they were like, okay, well, where were you between 10 p.m. and, you know, the next day on Sunday, he's like, I was at home studying. I mean, I didn't see another person. I didn't talk to another person. Well, no one can verify that. Yeah. You can say it all day long, but nobody can be like, yeah, I totally saw him and there's video footage and all this stuff. Right. So it was after speaking with the maintenance man that the autopsy results had come back and confirmed that the torso was, in fact, Lauren. They also determined that she was likely dismembered with a hacksaw. Detectives spoke with the owner of the apartment and asked to see their maintenance area, specifically where they kept their tools. And so when they go and look, in that area, they found three different saws on the wall. And when they looked closer, they could see that one of them had traces of blood. So this shoots the maintenance man right to the top of the list. He's got access to these tools. He's got access he, to the apartments. He's got access to the apartments. He has no alibi. It definitely is going to change things for them. When they asked him about it, he, of course, denied that the saw that they had was the was one that he'd ever seen before. So they sent the hacksaw to a forensics lab to confirm the traces of blood belonged to Lauren. And with the discovery of the hacksaw, investigators began to focus on the apartment complex and its residents. When they went back and talked to Lauren's neighbors, all but one of them let them search their apartments. And this person that did not agree to this is Stephen McDaniel. So they asked if he would come downtown and talk to them, and he agreed to this. In his interview, they pressed Stephen about why he would not let them search his apartment. And he said, you know, maybe it's just the lawyer in me. Like, you know, I just, I don't want people in my personal space kind of thing. Now, he had some marks on his chin, and they wanted to know where those came from. And he's like, I've got this place. I don't know if it's like a hair. I don't know if it's like ingrown or it gets infected or something. But when it starts bothering me, I start picking at it. And I just kind of can't really stop picking at it. So it's just where I've been picking at my face. Like, I know that happens, but like, ew. <laughs> um, <laughs> eventually, he said that if they wanted to, he's like, if you, if you want to walk through my apartment and I walk through it with you, just so you can see that I'm not hiding Lauren away in there, we can do that if you want. And they're, and they're like, like, really? Yeah. You let like, us do that. All right, let's do it. Yeah, because Stephen thought there's nothing they can find, right? All right, so in his apartment, they find some condoms. When I first heard this, I was like, big fucking whoop, man. Like, what's the big deal? I also, in my mind, because I didn't I didn't know this case before I started knowing this case, I was like, okay, don't blame him. And sometimes you do get ingrown hair. Okay, sure. Like, yeah, reasonable. All this is reasonable. Mm-hmm. And then I heard why they thought the condoms were weird. Yeah. So, all right. So, Stephen, 
is the kind of guy who is going to open his mouth to everybody. He just talk, 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 talks. He's a lawyer. Almost. He thinks he's very knowledgeable about how this shit works, but he will just yip, yap away. So they find these condoms and they're like, well, that's weird because Stephen had just told them earlier that he's a virgin and he was saving himself for marriage. And that was very important to him, right? Total virgin, never had sex, never going to have sex, not till I'm married. And he's not dating anybody we know. So they were like, um, squeeze me. Um, sorry to bother you. What you have a bunch of condoms in your house, but they showed a picture of the condoms in the drawer, and they're all kinds of they're different kinds of condoms. Yes. It's not like yeah. a one box of condoms that he had Mm-mm. bought to, you know. Yeah, it's like a bunch of just different kinds of condoms. It's like um pretty woman. Oh yeah. Style, like a plethora, an assortment. Yes. And so he says, because they're like, well, I thought you were saving yourself for marriage. So why do you have these condoms in here? And he's like, well, I stole those from other people's apartments in Barrister's Hall. Now, why in the fuck would you say that? To a detective? He might be a lawyer in training, but he's not a very good lawyer. (laughs) Like, Even if you did steal them, which he did, wouldn't you just be like, you know, I bought them just in case something ever happens and I've I've bought some over the years and I've just never used them and I just never got rid of them? Yeah. Somebody gave them to me as a gift, a gag gift, because I know that I'm a virgin. Yeah, like... You, why are you going to tell detectives when you've got a girl who's been murdered, who's like your, essentially your next door neighbor in your same apartment complex? Oh, I just go around and uh, break into people's apartments when they're not there and I steal shit from them. Yeah. I mean, thank God. Because again, somebody went into her apartment to get her. As always, thank God he was that stupid. But I'm exactly. just at a loss for exactly how stupid he is. Like, come on. Now, the detective said that burglary is considered to be one of the first crimes committed by both homicidal and non-homicidal sex offenders. And it's what they call a gateway crime. Hmm. It makes sense. I I don't think I've ever put it together exactly like that. But I mean, like, who we talked about, like, Russell Williams. You know, he first started just breaking into people's houses Kind of started out with the peep and Tom shit. Then he'd break in and take their panties and stuff like that. And well, later did other things. Why can't I think of the name of it? We just covered it. Um, the guy from Florida. He grew up in Louisiana. Then he went to Florida. Shoot. Uh, oh my gosh. What is his name? It's Daniel Danny Rowling. Yes. Rowling? Yeah. He started maybe not breaking in, but he was a peep and a damn peep and Tom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I bet he did though. And that like maybe they didn't have evidence of it, but I'm sure he did. Yeah. So this definitely is a major cause for concern with the detectives. Like, what the fuck, dude? And at this time, you know, Lauren's disappearance was big news. And from the day that it was reported, news vans were all over the place trying to talk to anybody that they could. So they're they're there at the apartment complex. Well, Stephen just happened to be out there and he's like, yeah, I'll talk. Like he gets on the news and does a fucking two camera interview. So investigators started to look back over the interviews that he had given those, you know, first couple of days that they were searching for Lauren. And one of them stuck out, stuck out, stuck out. Let's move on. It stuck out. And we're going to drop the audio of that interview here. But essentially, Stephen was asked about the torso that they had just found in the, what they called a garbage can. Yes. But he's acting like, obviously, that he knows nothing about this at this point because they hadn't confirmed that it was Lauren yet. So they're like, what do you know about, you know, the body in the garbage? And he's like, what? I, oh, I, I think I need to sit down. And it's just like, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you know anybody that, any enemies she might have had, somebody that might want to hurt her? No, I mean, we're, we don't know where she is. I mean, the only thing we can think is that maybe she went out running and someone snatched her. Because, I mean, we went, at, we went over, one of her friends had a key, we went inside, 
and tried to see if there was anything amiss, but I mean, she had a door jam that was sitting right by it, so there was no sign that anyone broke in. I mean, the door was locked when everyone got here. I mean, we, we just don't know where she is. I mean, what about um, in the, like, the parking lot area? I know they've been doing a lot of, I think that's where they have recovered the body or whatever they recovered from there. Body? Um, had you heard, had you seen anything there? Had you seen anything there? I, I mean, we don't know if this is the same person. You know what I mean? Like, they took out a body there earlier. We don't know if it's the same person or not. So that's how we're trying to ask people if they know who lived there. Are you okay, sir? I think I need to sit down. Okay. So after seeing this interview, the police knew that Stephen knew something about Lauren's murder, and he confessed to burglarizing other apartments. So authorities put out a burglary warrant and held Stephen while they tried to gather more information and more evidence to prove that he murdered Lauren. They went back to his apartment, and they began a thorough search after getting a warrant. During the search, they found a pair of undies and a master key to the apartments and additional an additional key that was for Lauren's door. With these new findings, they questioned Stephen again. And during this interview, they asked Stephen if he hurt Lauren. And at a certain point, Stephen puts both hands on the table and just says, I don't know, over and over again. And the video is super bizarre. I mean, he just seems like he's kind of in a daze or he's something. Yeah, he's almost like in a catatonic state. Like, yes, there's one point where one of the investigators, they're in ro- little rolly chairs, right? He's rolled right up to him. Their knees are almost touching. He's right in his face. And he's like, you, what did you do? Or, you know, like, what do you know about Lauren? Where is she? Did you hurt her? And he's looking him dead in the face, but it looks like he's got this blank face, blank stare. And he's like, I yep. don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. It's I don't so, know. yeah, so bizarre. Know. He's got a really distinct voice too. I mean, you guys have heard it now at this point, like, yeah, like kind of nasally and I don't know. He's like mousy looking. He looks, I mean, y'all got to see a picture of him. Mm -hmm. And I gave his voice more passion than he did, but yeah, he's very like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's eerie. It is. It's very, very, very bizarre. So they talked with him for a few hours, but Steven never said anything. And he eventually requested a lawyer investigators took his computer and looked through it and they found browsing history that included BDSM and searches for how to get away with murder and how to dismember a body. How to get away with murder. I'm sorry. Is there a post that's like, well, here's how you do it. The best way to get away with murder is X, Y, Z. Like coming from an expert because I've gotten away with murder. Exactly. Like what? Yeah. (laughs) No one said he was smart. (laughs) So for weeks, Stephen remained in jail on the burglary charges while investigators pulled more and more things out of his apartment, and they found handguns, a semi-automatic rifle, several knives, and a sword. Yeah. Sword? A sword. They also found empty packaging for a hacksaw, and that hacksaw packaging matched the one that they found in the maintenance room. Yep, because the maintenance room had three saws. Two of them were the same. One was different. The one that was different had blood on it. The one that was different that had blood on it is the saw that the, this packaging goes to that they found in Stephen's apartment. Yes. Which, honestly, him, I mean, he damn near framed the maintenance man. I know. I was like, what a little piece of shit trying to frame this innocent maintenance man. Mm-hmm. So at that point, investigators felt like they had enough evidence to go to the district attorney to get murder charges. So while they were reviewing the evidence, they watched videos that Stephen had taken. In one of the videos, Stephen was seen holding a pole with a camera on the end, and he then raised the pole up to Lauren's window and looked through the blinds with it. The timestamp for this video was June 25th at 11.10 p.m. He's like filming her sleeping. Uh Uh-huh. It's so fucking creepy. He's like looking into her windows and filming her. Uh. Yeah. It's, oh, it's so weird. Once that evidence was presented to Stephen and his attorneys, he confessed and agreed to a plea bargain. According to Stephen's confession, he made the video that that night around 11 p.m. Then around 4.30 a.m., he went into Lauren's apartment wearing a mask. When he went in, Lauren woke up and screamed for him to leave. They began to struggle, and Lauren pulled the mask off and saw that it was Stephen. Stephen then got up on top of her and strangled her to death. He then took her body to the shower where he dismembered her. 
He said that he took the rest of her body parts and put them in various dumpsters throughout the area. And investigators went to each individual dumpster that he said he put her body parts in. Then they went to the landfill, but they were unable to locate anything other than the torso. (sighs) Piece of fucking shit. Just so he can, what, watch her? I I assume he was going to rape her. I don't know what he was planning to do. I really don't. I wonder that pair of underwear, did it come from Lauren's house? Because he had his sights set on her. Yeah, I think it had to have. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. So initially, they were going to try to give Stephen the death penalty, but Lauren didn't believe in it. So with that in mind, in 2014, he was given life in prison to honor Lauren. He will be eligible for parole in 2041. And many of the investigators involved think that Stephen is a serial killer in the making and that it would have only... It would only have taken Lauren's murder to put him on a path that might have left several dead in his wake. Yeah. I agree. In 2018, a GoFundMe was started to raise money for legal fees and an appeal for Stephen, but it was quickly shut down. Also in 2018, Stephen acted as his own lawyer when trying to appeal for a retrial on the grounds that his constitutional rights were violated since he wasn't medically cleared before he consented to the searches. He claimed that the documents for his defense were also intercepted by the district attorney and that his initial attorneys didn't adequately defend him. And guess what? That appeal was denied. In May of 2022, Stephen filed another appeal claiming again that his defense documents, including documents that were vital to his defense, were stolen by the district attorney. He has requested that his conviction be overturned and that he be released from prison. I tried to find, like, I have not heard, read, seen anything that he sexually assaulted her. I don't know if... You know what? It honestly could be... And I don't know. I'm spitballing here. I don't know. I can't... Thank God in heaven I can't get into the mind of somebody like this because that'd be a dark place to be and I don't want to be there. But I do wonder if the fact that he is a virgin, if that's actually true, maybe maybe he's really holding on to that. You know, like maybe mm. he can't bring himself to to have sex with anyone, consensual, rape, whatever, because that's, he's a serial killer with morals. I don't know. Right. Yeah. 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 That's, that's the only thing that I can, that I can reckon. I don't know. Yeah. And I don't know if, if he just wouldn't talk about that and then they couldn't find enough evidence because it had been a few days and only her person was found or. Sure. I don't know, but I mean, he never confessed to that. No, he didn't. But it just seems like, wasn't that why you went into her apartment? Or do you do you think it was just to kill her? I don't know. I mean, I've watched some docu-series on murders where it can be sexually motivated, but somebody doesn't have to get their rocks off to get that sexual gratification. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I don't I don't know. Like a Oh gosh, how would one um you don't have to ejaculate to come to fruition with an orgasm? Really? Apparently. Oh. Okay. Who knew? I know. Yeah. Plus, I was watching the new Love is Blind season, and apparently there's one guy on there who has been learning the art of orgasming without ejaculating. I don't know. I know. I, don't I know. know why that I makes know. me just feel so much worse about it. Like, I don't. Uh, same. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just trying to understand it because I would think that it was sexually motivated, but maybe, maybe right. one doesn't have to do all the things that you would think of for it to be sexually motivated for it to be right. sexually motivated. You know, I don't know. Right, yeah, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, he's gross, grody, disgusting, dirty trash can full of poop. Don't like him. 100%. He's awful and he looks weird. Yeah, yeah. I felt bad while I was watching the A Time to Kill on this episode. If you're watching on Hulu, it's season two, episode 10. If you're watching on YouTube, it's season three, episode one. But it's called What Happened to Lauren? Mm-hmm. And I can't re- believe that I thought about all of the top of my head, but I know that was incredible. Um, they do some reenactments, but nobody speaks. It, like the reenactors don't speak and have dialogue and stuff. But they showed a guy that was supposed to be Steven's reenactor, and I was like, okay, <laughs> that's rude to Steve. Oh, that's what he looks like. I know that guy looked way better than Steven. They did him a favor. 
in fact. Yes. So also I felt really bad for the woman that owned the apartments because she said that when she found out that they were like questioning Steven, she was upset with them and was like, felt like they were picking on him. Yeah. Kind of. And they were stereotyping him is what she said. Oh yeah. That's what it was. They were stereotyping because she said, yeah, you know, he's socially awkward. Everybody knows that, but he's totally harmless. And He's a nice guy and like all that stuff. And then when she found out all of that stuff that he copied those keys and like all that, she was just like, well, and I thought it was oh really, oh my gosh, kind of showed her character and how sweet she is because when she found out that he had the key, she was like, oh my God, where did I leave him? Like, this is my fault. How, how could I have done this? Yeah. Yeah. Did I drop the key that he picked up? But it wasn't just the one key. He had copies of all the Multiple, keys. I mean, yeah. And he'd broken into plenty of people's apartments. So, I mean, he knew what he was doing. 100%. And just him trying to frame the maintenance man with the tool that he used to dismember her. Because, Tori, I thought about this. I don't know what you think, but do you think that if that's all the information that they had, even if they had never recovered that the maintenance man had ever even talked to Lauren or anything like that, like, that's still, that's, yes, I think so, too. I think they, with that information, had they not developed more on Steven, they possibly could have gotten a conviction with that. They've convicted people with less. And I was shocked whenever they said that they asked the guy, have you seen this saw? And he was like, no, I've never seen it before in my life. And they were like, okay. I was like, y'all believe, wow, that's all. Y'all took it (laughs) at his word? And it ended up being good. Maybe there was more to it than that. I don't know. But I'm like, wow, that didn't happen. Because they could have taken Took it and ran with it. Exactly. I was surprised they didn't just arrest him. I know. But thank God, because Stephen, I fully believe, and I know you do too, he would would not have stopped with Lauren. No, absolutely not. He would have figured out how much he liked it and been like, oh, well, this is like the perfect crime. I can do that again. Yeah. But guys, that's it. That's it. Thank you guys so much for listening. We love the ever loving shit out of all of you guys. And we hope that we catch you on the next episode. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. And we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. 